Turn with me back to 1 Corinthians chapter number 6. 1 Corinthians chapter number 6. I believe this is our 27th week in Paul's epistle to, the, to uh, Corinth, his first epistle to Corinth. And we have enjoyed greatly as we have seen the apostle deal with this church. I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 8. That will be the text for our consideration this morning. 1 Corinthians Chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. These are the words of God. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels, how much more, things that pertain to this life? If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, no, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren? Brother goeth to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers. Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you, because ye go to law one with another. Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do ye not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, ye do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. I'm going to preach to you this morning a message entitled, Don't Take Your Brother to Court. Don't Take Your Brother to Court. Throughout church history, the greatest hindrances to the witness and mission of the church have not been the sinful agitations from without, but the besetting sins from within. Nothing will do more harm to our witness before an unbelieving world when we as Christians behave no differently than the lost world that we are supposed to be a witness to. Paul is addressing such a situation here in chapter 6. A bit of history is required to understand the context. Ancient Greek and Roman societies, of which Corinth was certainly a part, were known for being very litigious. That is, they were very prone to going to law to settle personal disputes. Much of our legal jargon today still comes from the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans and their councils and their courts and their judicial system. In our common vernacular, we might call such a society Sue Happy. You ever heard someone, uh, you know, that so-and-so is Sue Happy. You know, they're just looking for a reason to take someone to court. And the Corinthians, as products of their culture, they continued in some of these litigious practices. And as Paul often must do in this epistle as he will continue to do in uh, the coming chapters, he is here addressing an issue that is a leftover of their pagan culture. It is a way in which they lived. It was normal for them. It was very common in their society, but it was at the root pagan. And they are now believers. The Lord has saved them. And Paul is having to write to them to say, you cannot continue to live The way that you once lived, you cannot continue to do some of the things you once did because you are a Christian now. You're a church. And before we 
jump on the bandwagon and say, oh, those Corinthians better stop and consider in what ways do we live and think and behave that are remnants of our life before Christ. We don't even always realize that we're doing it. So that is what Paul is addressing here. The question then is, but is this litigiousness, is this judicial mindset, is this a virtuous quality that should be found amongst God's people? Or as we, are we as Christians called to a higher ethic, called to a higher standard of morality in dealing with these types of issues? Some of the questions that Paul seeks to answer in this chapter, should Christians sue other Christians? Should we take our brothers and sisters before unbelieving courts? Are personal disputes between us to be handled by non-believing judges? Are these matters to be handled by the church? If so, well, who should we find to judge these matters? Should Christians ever use the secular legal system? Now, these are questions that we might hear a sermon like this and think, well, uh, that's not all that exciting. And indeed, as I was studying for this, I thought, well, uh, this certainly is not a message that perhaps calls for, for tears and, and shouting and jumping up and down. But yet it's very practical and it's part of the word of God. <laughs> and that's the blessed thing about expository preaching is it forces me as the preacher to uh, prepare texts that I would not otherwise preach. I guarantee you, anytime I've been asked to, to speak at a conference or at a church on a Sunday, I haven't thought, you know what, I'm going to preach to them about why we shouldn't sue one another. <laughs> uh, but it also causes you, as the congregation, to hear a message devoted on uh, such an issue. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I would care to venture that there, there's probably no one here, maybe, maybe one or two, that have ever heard an entire message devoted to this issue. I have never heard an entire message devoted to this issue. So let us see what the Lord has for us in this text. And let me give you a roadmap here of these eight verses so that you can see where we're going. I want to look first at the sinful issue in verses or verse 1. The sinful issue. Paul will explicitly state the problem. The sinful issue. And then uh, I want us to consider... The sharp interrogatives in verses 2 and 3. Paul will ask four rebuking questions. And he will explain why the problem is a problem. And then lastly, verses 5 through 8, I want us to look at the solutions investigated. Paul is going to offer two plausible solutions to their problem. So we have in this text one problem, four questions... And two solutions. Okay, everybody on board thus far. Let us begin then, in verse number one, with the sinful issue. The sinful issue, Paul begins, he says, dare any of you. Uh, notice with me that Paul does not begin with any transitional phrase. I know it's been a couple of weeks since we've last looked at 1 Corinthians, but you'll remember chapter 5 was dedicated to church discipline. Handling issues within the body, sinful issues within the body. Uh, and when Paul wrote this epistle, he obviously did not write it with chapter-verse divisions. He wrote it like you would write a letter. And because he does not use any transitional phrase here in verse number 1, we may understand that 
he is continuing on in the same logical progression of thought as chapter 5. Well, in chapter 5, he instructed the church on how to handle certain issues within the body. And now in chapter 6, Paul will rebuke them for attempting to handle disputes outside of the body before unbelieving court. So it's kind of all one general thought. And he begins in verse 1, Dare any of you, and he is in effect asking, based on the instructions I've just given to you about handling issues amongst yourselves, how dare you? How, how dare you? Do you really have the audacity to go and stand before some unbelieving judge and handle these disputes amongst yourselves apart from the church? How dare you? How dare you? Or dare any of you having a matter against another. Now, this is really important. And so I'm going to, I'm going to camp out here for, for a moment because this designates what type of situation the apostle has in mind. And it's very important for us to understand what type of situation Paul is discussing here. Uh, his directions in this chapter pertain to disputes between church members. Personal disputes between church members. He says, dare any of you having a matter against another. And in verse 2, he even suggests that they are rather unimportant disputes because he says in verse 2, um, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matter? So what are we talking about here? We're talking about uh, petty disagreements and disputes between church members. We must recognize that this text is not an absolute prohibition of Christians using the legal system in all cases. Let me say that as clearly as I know how. If a church member commits murder, okay, that is not something that should be handled in-house. You understand that? Uh, so that, that's not a time to call the pastor and get some advice and... You know, we'll deal with it Wednesday evening at the business meeting. No, no, no. no. Okay. Um, this, this is not that. This is talking about disagreements between church members that may invoke some civil law. Okay. We'll, and we'll get, we'll get into that as we look at this text. But obviously this text uh, is not an absolute prohibition. That is, that's, you know, a church member committing murder is an extreme example but this text has been woefully abused uh, to protect people in the church who have committed egregious crimes. I'm talking about child molesters, spousal abusers. And churches have said, well, we're not supposed to go to law before the unbelievers. We're going to handle this in-house. And that's not the message that I'm trying to preach. That's not the main emphasis of this text. I'm simply saying that there is a line. I'm not going to seek to define what that line is um, here this morning, but but there is a line in which, which church members must use the legal system, okay? Uh, if you come to me to confess your sin of murder and you think that you know, it's just going to be pastoral confidentiality, you've got another thing coming, okay? That's not what the apostle has in mind. He is not teaching us, by the way, that we should establish our own church courts to subvert the legal system altogether. That's called a cult, Okay? Rather, he is teaching us how to relegate different types of issues. Situations that should be handled by the church 
should not be handled by non-Christian courts. And civil situations that are in the realm of secular government should not be solely handled by the church. Um, A whole message, again, could be devoted on the ministries that God has given. I'm speaking of the ministry of the state, the ministry of the church, and the ministry of the family. He has relegated different responsibilities to each of those ministries, and those ministries are not to usurp the other. Okay, that, that, that's, We have to understand that principle somewhat to get chapter 6. Another reason why this cannot be an absolute prohibition of using the legal system, especially using it to our advantage, is because even Paul, on his missionary journeys, appealed to to the Roman government, and he invoked his rights as a Roman citizen when it furthered his ministry endeavors. He did that in Acts 22, and he did that in Acts 25. As a Roman citizen, he had the right to have his case heard before king, uh, the king, the emperor, and he invoked that right. And they tried, <laughs> they tried to dissuade him. The Roman government tried to dissuade him. He says, nope, I'm a Roman citizen. I want to talk to the emperor. And we don't uh, the book of Acts doesn't chronicle how that meeting went down necessarily because it ends at chapter 28. Uh, but we all know why Paul wanted to invoke that right because he was planning on preaching the gospel to the emperor. So what, what might be an example of this sort of situation that Paul has in view? Uh, let me, with, for the sake of being uh, a little bit too lax, let me use an example just to put some meat and, and flesh on this. Suppose with me, if you will, that Jackson wants to hire Lucas to mow his lawn twice a month for, throughout the, the summer. And he agrees to pay him for doing that $60. I'll pay you $60 a month. You come and mow my lawn uh, twice a month. Let's say, uh, I'll give you both sides of this so no one feels like I'm, they're being singled out. Let's say Lucas only cuts it once a month. And Jackson gives him the $60, and then Jackson says, wait a minute, you only cut my grass once a month. You owe me a lawn cutting. And Lucas says, no, I don't. And they have this dispute, petty disagreement amongst two members. That's the type of thing that Paul says, we don't need to be going to civil court and suing one another, and he'll tell us exactly why we shouldn't do that as we go down in this passage. Or vice versa, let's say, Lucas cuts it twice, and Jackson says, here you go, here's $40. And Lucas says... You told me 60, right? So that's what Paul has in mind, okay? Just want to make that crystal clear, lest we also be accused of abusing this text in some cult-like fashion. That is not at all where we're headed, okay? So he says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, here is the sinful issue. Go to law before the unjust and not before the saints. This is the issue. The members of the church were taking one another to unbelieving courts to settle personal disputes that should have been handled in the church. Rather than solving these issues amongst themselves, they were airing out their dirty laundry for all of the unbelieving world to see. The Bible gives both precept and precedent in both Old and New Testaments for the people of God to arbitrate amongst themselves to settle personal disputes. In the book of Exodus, Exodus 18, verses 21 and 22, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, was giving Jethro, or was giving Moses advice as the nation of Israel was getting larger and Moses had, had his hands full. And Jethro said, Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men such as fear God, men of truth, 
hated covetousness, and place over them to be rulers of thousands and rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, rulers of tens, and let them judge the people at all seasons. And it shall be that every great matter they shall bring unto thee, but every small matter, if they shall judge, so shall it be easier for thyself, and they shall bear the burden with thee. Jethro said, Moses, you're too busy to handle all of these cases on your own, so you need to select men of Israel, men of good morals, believing men that can help you. He did not say, Moses, you're too busy, so tell them to go down to uh, the courthouse of the Assyrians and have the Assyrians settle these matters for you. When Israel inherited the land in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, Moses speaking to Israel says, How can I myself alone bear your cumbrance and your burden and your strife? Take you wise men and, and understanding and know among your tribes, and I will make them rulers over you. But that was not just a precept in the Old Testament for uh, the Old Covenant Israel, but here in the New Testament, we have the same precepts in the church. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, Jesus speaking to the church, he says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, so Jackson not paying Lucas the agreed amount, or Lucas not providing the right number of grass cuttings, That's a trespass against your brother. You're sinning against your brother. Jesus says, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. So if Jackson says, you forgot to cut my grass, I'm saying, oh yeah, so sorry, I'll be there tomorrow. Well, that's as far as it needs to go. As far as it needs to go. Jackson's not to then get on the phone and text to that, no good, Lucas, he forgot to cut. No, it's taken care of. It's taken care of. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more. Now, what I'm saying to you, we don't see it practiced very much by by Christians in churches today, but it's very plainly what Jesus said. So if Jackson has talked to Lucas, and Lucas is still saying, I'm not not coming over, I'm not going to do it, Jackson should say, hey Bryce, here's what's going on. Um, Here's the sin that's been committed against me. I want you to come with me. And I'm going to talk with Lucas again, and I want you to be there as a witness. And so they do that, and Lucas has now been convicted over his sin, and he sees Jackson and Bryce, and they talk to him, and Lucas says, you're right, I apologize, I'll be there tomorrow, I'll take care of it, I'm so sorry for forgetting or for not coming. And it's over, doesn't need to go any further. But let's say Lucas says, I don't care, you can bring Bryce, you can bring whoever you want, I ain't cutting your grass. Well, Jesus says then, and if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. That's what Jesus says to do about personal disputes between two church members. But the sinful issue in the Corinthian church is that they were not practicing this at all. In fact, they were doing just the opposite. So that is the sinful issue issue, but now I want you to see the sharp interrogatives in verses 2 and 3. In verses 2 and 3, Paul will engage the Corinthians with four sharp questions. They are rhetorical questions that are meant to rebuke them, and throughout Paul's line of questioning, we will see that for believers to take their, uh, their other believing friends, their other church members to court, it is entirely inconsistent with our identity as Christians. It is a much bigger deal than we realize. This is, 
the crux of the matter. Taking your brother to court sets up obstacles for your evangelism and it hinders your witness. Let me say that again. When we as Christians, when we go to the world to settle our problems, we are living below our dignity as Christians. We are hindering our witness. We are placing up obstacles for our evangelism. That is why this is so important to Paul. Because when the church behaves no differently than the lost world around them, it's no minor issue. And here are the Corinthians parading their carnality in front of the very people to whom God called them to preach the gospel. Being a Christian is not a a Sunday morning from 10.30 to 12.30 deal. It's a 24-7 calling of God upon your life to live a consistent Christian testimony before the world. I've said it before. I'm not a big fan of Christian cliches, but every now and then one of them has some truth to it, and there's one that does, and that is your life might be the only Bible that some people ever read. And they will look to you and they will say, he told me he was a Christian. I can't believe he's acting that way. I thought Christians weren't supposed to do that. Or they will look at you and they will say, there's something about him that is just so different. There's something about her that is so different. I wonder if it has something to do with the Christianity she's always talking about. This passage is not then just about how to settle petty disputes within the church. It is about how to maintain its Christian testimony before the world around it. How can we preach the forgiveness of sins by Jesus Christ if just last week we were in court with a church member because we wouldn't forgive them of $20? You see the contradiction that that poses for us? This is the heart of the issue, and Paul is now going to tear it down and expose its folly with these four sharp interrogatives. So, question number one, look at verse two. Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world. Now, if you know anything about 1 Corinthians, your ears should immediately perk up when you hear, do ye not know? Uh, That is a common uh, tactic of Paul when he says, do ye not know? Know ye not? He is saying, you should know better. What do you you mean? I've taught you this. You've learned this. He employs this language of reprimand and scolding as he's writing to this immature church. He's not asking them something that they have not been taught, but something that they are failing to apply. Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? The Bible teaches that the saints of Christ shall reign with him when he comes to judge the world at the end of the age. Matthew 19 and verse 28, And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit in the throne of his glory. Ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Revelation 2, verses 26 through 27, And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and the vessels of a potter shall be, they be broken to shivers, even as I have received of my father. Now the timing of this rule, uh, the details of how this judgment will occur, that's a study for another day. Much debate has been done to that, but the important thing for us is to be certain of that however it will happen, it will happen. Regardless of what your eschatological framework is, this will happen. If you are in Christ, 
You are united to him. You are a joint heir with him. And you will reign. I, I think we can argue you currently are reigning with him. But you will, your reign will be even greater at the end of this age when he comes back personally and visibly. The exaltation and dominion of Christ is the exaltation and dominion of his people. We as Christians shall join the Lord Jesus in his judgment of the world. And we don't practice for this by going to the world and having it judge us. That's Paul's point here. Going to the world and seeking legal arbitration from unbelieving judges is to live completely and consistently with the reality of who we are in Christ. Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? Question two. And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? In other words, Paul is asking, if you are to sit with Christ on seats of universal judgment in the future, are you unworthy of the lowest seats of judgment now? Paul is saying, you're you're telling me that You're going to judge the world someday. You can't even judge these small matters, these insignificant issues, these minuscule trifles in the church. When we behave this way, we deny the reality of who we are in Christ and who we're destined to be. When we live like the lost world around us, we live below our privileges and beneath our dignity. And by the way, this isn't just true with taking your brother to court. This is a principle that could be applied to a number of issues. Think about all of the things that get us so worked up, get us so bent out of shape. We must ask the question, do do these things really matter in light of eternity? I think there's going to come a day, brothers and sisters, when we reign with Christ, when this reign is fully realized, and we will feel very foolish as we sit in the annals of eternity and reflect on our earthly existences and we remember all of the silly little things that dominated our emotions, that occupied so much of our minds. In other words, $20 really is not going to matter very much. But the damage that that $20 could potentially do to your witness for Christ will matter. And we will regret allowing such petty things to hinder our effectiveness to serve Christ. Getting back that 20 bucks from Brother Jim is not more important than maintaining my Christian witness and living my life as to point others to the Savior. That's question two. Question three, in verse three, notice what Paul says. Know ye not, there it is again, know ye not that we shall judge angels? (laughs) Paul is really ramping it up here, isn't he? You're not just going to judge the world and the people of the world. You're going to judge angelic beings. Paul is saying to these believers that have a dispute, some commentators suggest that Paul is writing about a specific case. That there's a specific issue in the church with two believers that are going before an unbelieving court. And Paul is writing to address these two specific individuals. It's as if Paul is saying, both of you are going to judge angels someday... And here you are in court suing each other. Seriously? We live below our dignity as Christians when we devolve into such behavior. And in light of that, in light of judging angels, doesn't it make our petty problems seem so small? 
Question four. At the end of verse three. How much more things that pertain to this life? Paul utilizes here an argument from the lesser to the greater. How much more? If you're going to judge angels someday, how much more can you judge the simple things of this life now? If you will judge angelic beings, you should be able to handle these minor quarrels. That's what he's saying. So what we have going on here in Corinth is it's really nothing new. Nothing new for this epistle. Nothing new for a problem that faces all Christians at all times. It is another manifestation of their gross immaturity as a church. That's what this is. Nothing pious about suing your brother, but there's something very immature about it. It is a revelation of their carnality. Very seldom, very seldom is the manifestation actually the root issue. Whatever, whatever the problem seems to be on the surface level, we have to ask ourselves, what is causing that problem? That's what the Spirit of God does. It searches us out and it searches our hearts. Why do we do the things that we do? What sins could we be unaware of that are affecting the way that we live? It's not just that they're taking their brother to court. It is why they're doing it. And the potential results of doing it that makes this matter so serious to the Apostle Paul. This this court case, this, this matter of suing your brother, this could potentially be something that could ruin a church plant. Could ruin a, a New Testament church. So let's ask the question, why might we take a fellow church member to court to settle a disagreement? Well, let me tell you why we wouldn't do it. Well, it's not out of love. Uh, It's not out of forbearance. Certainly not because we are preferring one another before ourselves. It's not because we are exercising patience, all of the things that the Bible tells us to do. You know, if, if individuals or if problems or if a particular outlet of media or whatever the case may be, if that causes you to just get worked up and angry and, and fester and agitated, just cut it out. I would, never, I would never promote total ignorance of the world around you, but I heard something very convicting from Pastor Jim Savastio last week. He said, you know, it is possible to go to heaven being entirely ignorant of cultural events. But it is not possible to go to heaven being void of the fruit of the Spirit. So if there's an individual in your life and and they're just constantly causing problems and friction and you just get angry and you, you just get agitated. I'm not saying the problem isn't you. Perhaps it is something you need to work on. But what I'm saying is until you can figure that out, maybe that's just someone you need to distance yourself from. Maybe that's an issue that you just need to let go and forget about because it is not promoting in you godliness and the fruits of the Spirit. It's not promoting peace, love, joy, long-suffering, so on and so forth. So why do we do it then? Why would we take a church member to court? Greed? Selfishness? Pride? Covetousness? Uh, the need to be right? Do any of y'all struggle with the need to be right? I, I struggle with the need to be right. The need to be self-vindicated? Not only do I need to be right, I need everyone else to know I'm right. 
that's a reason why we might want to sue our brother. He has wronged me, he, and I'm going to prove it to him. And if the church doesn't see that he's wronged me, and if he doesn't see that he's wronged me, we're going to court, and the court's going to let him know that he's wronged me. That's the mentality of the church. But when Christians act in such a way, brothers and sisters, it brings shame upon the church. It brings reproach upon the church. Jesus said, the world will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. Uh, Yeah, I get it. The contemporary church preaches love, love, love all the time, doesn't preach a full balance of God, but oh, he's justice and he's wrath. I get all of that. I understand. Believe me, I do. There's nothing virtuous about being petty just to prove that you're right. That's why this issue is as serious as it is. Those are the sharp interrogatives. So now, let us look in verses 4 through 8 at the solutions investigated. Solutions investigated. Having surveyed the actions of the Corinthians, having exposed their folly, Paul will now offer up two solutions that could be implemented in this situation. Uh, Both of these solutions are consistent with biblical principles and uh, who we are as God's people. There's two of them. We're going to look at the first one first. Go figure. But let me say this to you. The second one, which we'll get to in verse 7. The second one is much more difficult for us to apply and implement. And we'll see what I mean as we get there. Look at the first solution. In verse 4, Paul says, If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life. Again, notice how careful Paul is to continue to qualify. He's not telling them, um, if you have a church member and they robbed a bank on Saturday and showed up for worship service on Sunday, it's not something that we should be trying to handle in the church. No, he says, if then you have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. Now, there's two parts to this. The first thing is you should find someone in the church that is wise and godly, that is a believer, that can arbitrate this issue. But notice also that Paul is so adamant about this that he even suggests going to someone who is least esteemed in the church. In other words, it is better for two Christians to have their case settled by the church janitor than by an unbelieving Supreme Court justice. That's what Paul is saying. And not only does this protect our witness, but the truth is, if that church janitor is truly converted... He will have a better moral compass of right and wrong according to the word of God than the most studied legal professional whose mind is still dead in trespasses and sins. It is better to be judged by the least esteemed in the church than by the most esteemed in the world. Because they're a believer. Because they too worship and serve the Lord Jesus Christ because they too submit to the ultimate authority of his word. And it is always better to go to someone who might be least esteemed but holds to that than someone who's most esteemed to the world and serves an entirely different God as an entirely different system of morality. Furthermore, it also protects the reproach of the church. You know, I, I really don't think that it's helpful for us as we are talking with others, uh, talking with friends and family, uh, to just be constantly going through all of the issues that we experience as a body. The church is a family. Do any of your families have issues? 
Do any of your families have family members that sometimes they struggle to get along? That happens in the church. And why should we be surprised that our friends don't want to come and visit with us on Sunday mornings when all throughout the week we're just complaining about what so-and-so did and what so-and-so said. What he, you won't believe what they said Wednesday night at prayer meeting. You know? It's petty. It's immature. I, I remember a pastor friend of mine, was, he was in a, uh, a similar situation and there was a church member that cornered him one afternoon at a fellowship and was really just kind of berating him, criticizing his ministry, criticizing things he believed, telling him how to pastor, you know, you should be doing this, you should be doing that. And I, I remember he didn't respond, well, let me tell you something, brother. He just kind of nodded his head and didn't say very much. And this is, of course, in a context of got other people there that are listening to this. Some semi-awkward. So then I asked him later, I said, why didn't you, why didn't you, you know, set him straight? You were right. We all knew you were right. Why didn't he said, what would that have accomplished? I mean, he, he, his mind was made up. Right? He, he was set, set in his ways. He, he thought I had wronged him and uh, I had mistreated him and aligned him and you know, was not faithfully served. How, how could I have convinced him otherwise? By lashing back at him, all I would have done is disrupt the harmony and the unity of the gathering. That's a mature man. That's someone who values the harmony of the Spirit ministering amongst God's people more than he does his own personal vindication. So it's, it's better for us to handle these matters in-house than, than causing a scene, than causing a stir. And again, this... It's a principle that applies across a variety of circumstances. I could name off a list. Counseling. Education. These are things, these are areas where we as believers should first, when possible, seek out other believers rather than immediately turning to the world. Paul says, if you have these judgments, you have these matters, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. And then in verse 5, he continues... And he says, I speak to your shame. Obviously, Paul is not being very sensitive here, is he? Remember, a couple chapters ago, he said, I don't write these things to shame you. Remember when he said that? But now here he's saying, I do write these things to shame you. He wants them to feel ashamed of what they're doing. He wants them to see the folly and the foolishness of what they're doing. Partly because of the egregious nature of the matter, the reproach that it brings upon the church, but partly because of how simple the solution is. Shame, brothers and sisters, is not always a bad thing. Shame is to the conscience what pain is to the body. It lets us know that something is horribly wrong and needs to be corrected. Paul wanted the Corinthians to consider how they've been dealing with these legal issues. He wanted them to kind of feel embarrassed about it. To realize, you know, that's really not something we should do as Christians. And and truth be told, I don't even really want to remember that we did that. I want to just get it right from here on out and just forsake that, that action. So as Paul continues in verse 5, you've got to love what Paul says next. Now as we read this, 
I want you to I want you to think about what Paul spent a large portion of the opening chapters discussing. Notice what he says in chapter five. Speak this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. Does anyone catch the irony here? What was the problem with the Corinthians in chapters 1, chapters 2, and chapter 3? They were parading around, bragging about how wise they were, about their worldly wisdom. They they boasted in their wisdom. They, They took so much pride in their worldly knowledge. Paul had to remind them that God hates the wisdom of this world. He's going to bring it to naught. And so Paul now in chapter 5, you know, I I understand because you have a laborious pastor that it takes us a long time to get from chapter 3 to 5, but imagine the Corinthians reading this letter. They just read chapters 1, 2, and 3 where Paul's rebuking their wisdom. A couple minutes later, they get to chapter 5. This is like a a, a stab in the side. It's It's a jeer, really. Paul is saying, I thought you guys were supposed to be exceptionally wise. I thought you had all these wise people in the church. Where are they? Don't you even have one wise man that can judge between the brethren? This is a dripping, sarcastic rebuke. Surely the Corinthians, if they were as wise as they thought they were, they must have had at least one wise man in the church, one wise woman in the church that could have served as a judge. Well, what is Paul doing? He's, he's informing them that they're really not as wise as they thought they were. And in verse 6 he says, But brother goeth to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers. Paul is restating the issue as he breaks down their situation and he exposes the foolishness of their behavior. Here is a church that brags about its wit, that brags about its wisdom, and yet it sends its church members to be judged by unbelievers that don't know Christ. Paul says, What a shame that is. What a shame that is. So solution number one, is simply to find someone in the church. Find a wise church member. Designate a pastor. Designate a man. Designate a woman. Seek out someone wise within the church when you have these disputes and and you really, you don't know how to reconcile them. Present it to them. Say, brother, sister, this is what is going on. What do you think we ought to do? And then receive that counsel. But don't forsake your dignity as one who is a joint heir with Christ and shall share in his reign and judgment over the world. Don't live beneath that. That's what you're called to. Let me say this as as an aside. You cannot do this unless you break free from your individualism that so plagues our society and so plagues the younger generation especially. I'm talking about this this lone wolf mentality. I'm going to live my life. I'm going to do everything on my own. I'm not going to open up to anybody. I'm not going to share anything with anyone. That's antithetical to what the church is. And let me say this, pastorally speaking, never think that you're bothering me or or, or bothering Jackson or Lucas or anybody. Never think you're bothering me when you you come to me with a question. You know, I, I... kind of chuckle when people say, I know you're, you have a busy life, I don't want to bother you. My response is, you are my life. People are my life. That's what I'm called to do. And, and trust me, because I've been there and done that, it's so much easier to have the initial question than for that, that question to be bottled up and kept a secret, and then when it finally explodes, having to deal with it later. Don't fester on these issues. 
let us be open. Let us be loving. Let us, let us entreat one another as members of a family. That is what we are called to be as Christians in Christ's church. That's solution number one. Judge, settle these matters within the church. You don't need to go be so happy to settle these disputes. Solution number two in verse seven. Verse seven. Now therefore, there is utterly a fault among you because you go to law with one another. The sense of this verse is that by going to court before unbelievers, both parties have already utterly failed. It doesn't matter who's right. doesn't matter who's wrong. If you have two Christians standing before a pagan judge, both of them have failed. Regardless of how the case is ruled, shame has already come upon the church. Their Christian witness has already been undermined. The, the verdict from this judge is meaningless. The damage has already been done. So now Paul will offer a solution that flies in the face of pride, flies in the face of self-centeredness. Notice what he says in verse 7. Why do ye not rather take wrong? Why do ye not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? What's the solution? When someone wrongs you, just let them wrong you. Just let them wrong you. Because the glory of Christ, the witness of the church, the testimony of God's people is more important than most of our petty disagreements between one another. Few things will hinder the unity of a church more than members with a victim mentality. People that carry themselves with a woe-is-me attitude. People that constantly harp on how poorly they have been treated by everyone else, but seldom think about how they treat others. People that obsess over the ways in which everyone offends them, but care very little for how they might offend others. People that are more concerned with their own vindication, their own glory, and their own honor than they are with the vindication, glory, and honor of Jesus Christ. If you heard these kind of people talk about Christianity, you'd think it was them that was crucified on a cross 2,000 years ago. So Paul says, instead of stirring up contention, instead of taking your brother to court, instead of having to make everything a, a personal fight, why not just suffer yourself to be wronged? I'm not, I'm not telling us that we should just be doormats. I'm not saying that at all. If you, if you really believe that your brother has offended you and you think it, it is an offense that really disrupts your relationship with them, then go to them. Follow Matthew 18. Follow solution number one. But there's a lot of times in which I, I might think to myself, somebody will say something to me and I'll think, well, what did they mean by that? And if I, if I can very quickly overthink it and make them say something they didn't either. You know what Paul says? If they did offend me, just forget about it. Just suffer yourself to be wronged. It's not worth disrupting what God is doing through us as we come to gather, as we come to assemble. Let us not waste another service having to deal with some petty issue like that. And it happens, and it quenches the Spirit of God, and it doesn't invite Him to embody our praises. Why do we always have this pressing need to be right, always wanting to be vindicated? Could it be that our pride causes us to care more about ourselves than about the work of Jesus Christ? Before stirring up another problem, we ought to really ask ourselves, 
is this issue worth pressing to the point of disrupting the unity and harmony of the Spirit of God ministering among His people? Let me say something else about the whole Matthew 18 thing, by the way. Before you initiate that, ask yourself, is this an issue that I would want to be brought up to the whole church? Because once you start that process, there's no getting off point until you find some resolution. Right? So when we think about it that way, usually that sly comment that we want to make because we feel like we've been wronged, if we really think about it in the grand scheme of things, we realize that we're not doing any good. In fact, we're harming. We're hindering what the Spirit is doing in our midst. Sometimes there are pressing situations. There are issues that need to be handled. But more often than not, it's better to exercise forbearance when we are wronged personally so as not to disturb the worship and the mission of the church and the gospel going forth. This goes against our sinful flesh, right? This is uncomfortable for us, but brothers and sisters, this is the Christian ethic. Did not Jesus say in Matthew 5, verses 38 through 40, You have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say unto you that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. When your brother says, you owe me that $20, I'm going to sue you for it. What does Jesus say? Jesus says we should say, well, here's 40. Let's just forget about it. And there are Christians today that would go so far as to say, well, Jesus ought not be such a pushover. He ought not be such an enabler. Jesus, you're gaslighting me right now. We laugh at it, but we hear it all the time. But don't you, don't you get it? What Paul is saying, what Christ is saying to us? Your witness, your testimony is more important than your rights. You were put on this earth to propagate the gospel and glorify God, not to glorify yourself and vindicate your own cause. And when you take your brother to court over some earthly matter, whether it be money or possessions or defamation, you are saying that these physical things are more important to you than your spiritual calling in Christ. Could it be that our unwillingness to suffer monetary loss instead of loss of our witness, we'll give up our witness very freely. We'll give up our testimony very freely. Could it be that that's because we value money? We value possessions more than we value our Christian character, name. We value being right more than we value sinners hearing the gospel and seeing it lived out in our lives. So Paul says in verse 8, Nay, ye do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. What a shame for a church to wind up in such a situation. May God give us the grace to mature in Christ so that we have his value and his interests above our own. And may we have the Christian maturity to patiently submit to injustice done against us if it means that the gospel will go forth. That's, that's the deciding mark here. You know, if you're saying, well, how do I know? How do I know what to pursue and what not to pursue? Ask yourself the question, what would most glorify God? Now, sometimes what would most glorify God is confronting the sin. If there's an egregious sin that has been committed against members of the church or the church as a, as a body, sometimes it's not glorifying to God to overlook it, or to forget about it. And we must deal with it. But we have to ask that question. 
how would God be most glorified? We need wisdom for this. May we never let our pride and selfishness get in the way of the work that God is doing amongst us. And as I close this morning, allow me to conclude with an encouragement to those of you who have in the past or perhaps are presently dealing with a situation where you're faced with this choice. And by the way, let me say this just for what it's worth. This, this is expository preaching. This is me just going line by line through 1 Corinthians. This is just where God and His providence has placed us. The sermon is not provoked by any incident or any, uh, any issue that we know of in this church. I don't, I don't think this is a problem right, right here in, at Christ Fellowship. At least the manifestation of it. I don't think that's a problem. I don't think anybody is suing or is planning on suing anybody else in this room. Okay? But perhaps you have experienced similar things in the past. You could fight for the sake of your own name or you could lay aside your honor for the honor of Jesus Christ. Let me encourage you with this. You are never more like the Lord Jesus than when you submit yourself to injustice and mistreatment for the sake of a higher purpose and calling. No one was more aligned than Christ. No one was more wrong than Jesus. And if anyone ever had the right to plead his case, it was him. If anyone had good reason to have self-pity, self-righteousness, it was Christ. But yet he suffered. He suffered unimaginable abuse, mistreatment, reproach, shame, mocking, scorning, abandonment, disrespect, cruelty, and hatred at the hands of wicked men. He even suffered it at the hands of his friends. He suffered it at the hands of Peter, who denied him three times. Um, he didn't go back at Peter and say, I'm mad at you, Peter. We're going to hash this out. We're going to have a big fight, Peter. He said, I prayed for you, but it wasn't worse than it was. Through it all, he never pleaded his case. He didn't even so much as open his mouth against his oppressors. Why? Because Jesus did not come to earth to secure a good reputation with the men and women of this world. He came to glorify the Father in heaven. He came knowing that his afflictions were but for a moment, but his heavenly joy was eternal. May we be like Christ. May we live with this perspective. We are upon this earth not to make a great name for ourselves, not to build up our own kingdom. We are here to serve Christ. And one day we shall be with him. No one will ever wrong us again. Throughout the ceaseless ages, and all of our earthly trials shall seem as nothing. So don't take your brother to court. But rather, as our Lord Jesus Christ modeled, emulate his selflessness, emulate his humility that God might be glorified and that the gospel might go forth. Let us pray. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for your goodness to us. As we look to this passage, Lord, apply it to our hearts. I don't know, Lord, this morning of any present matter that would be literally the same as what they were experiencing in Corinth, believers in the church, suing other believers in the church, but we all struggle, Lord, with the, the same root sins. Drive out our pride. Drive out our self-righteousness. Drive out our desire to be right and to be vindicated. Help us to lay aside these things that Christ might be glorified in us, that we might better serve Him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.